so now we'll move on to uh, Dr. Charles Flexner. Um, Charlie is really an international rock star in HIV pharmacology, I have to say. Uh, he comes to us from Johns Hopkins, where he is a professor of medicine in the divisions of clinical pharmacology and infectious diseases. He's also professor of pharmacology and molecular sciences in the School of Medicine and professor of international health in the Bloomberg School of Public Health. He also is a deputy director of the Institute for Clinical and Translational Research. And we are so excited to have him here today to talk about those very pesky drug-drug interactions uh, and the increasing challenge of uh, polypharmacy. So, uh, Dr. Flexner, we look forward to your presentation. Go ahead. Uh, thank you, Melanie, and thanks, everybody, for being here today. It's a truly a pleasure to uh, be in New York City once again virtually, uh, and hopefully the next time we'll be together uh, in person. Um, I'm going to do a case-based discussion of drug interactions and polypharmacy and the management of HIV, and this will obviously dovetail with uh, Christine's excellent talk about um, aging because polypharmacy is an issue that is, as you will see, tightly related to aging. So here are my uh, financial relationships uh, as required by uh, IAS USA. Here are my learning objectives for this session. Um, the case today is a 59-year-old male with a long history of HIV infection, heavily treatment experienced, um, who was referred from the urology clinic for advice about a drug regimen for prostatic hypertrophy and urethral obstruction. He was previously healthy except for gastroesophageal reflux, a history of depression, and a history of uh, multiple treated sexually transmitted infections. His current antiretroviral regimen is atraverine, 400 milligrams given once per day, darunavir, 800 milligrams given once per day, cobisostat, 150 milligrams per day, and dolutegravir, 50 milligrams per day. But he's also taking omeprazole, 20 milligrams per day, Malox, 30 cc's as indicated, sertraline, 50 milligrams per day for his depression, and has been on trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole prophylaxis because of a low CD4 count. So let's talk about aging and polypharmacy and HIV. How big is the problem? Well, as you know, as people grow older, they tend to accumulate more and more prescription medications. And here's a figure from an article published um, uh, uh, in 2007 by Janice Schwartz from UCSF, uh, looking at uh, prescriptions uh, per 100 people uh, in uh, those less than uh, 75 years old and those greater than 75 years old. And the older group obviously has more prescriptions and the kinds of prescriptions are perhaps predictable. Uh, medication for blood pressure, lipids, pain, diuretics, uh, ACE inhibitors, diabetes, beta blockers, etc. Now, these are non-HIV-infected patients, but what about HIV-infected patients? Well, here's a study from the Danish HIV cohort looking at HIV-infected individuals uh, broken down by uh, age uh, bracket as compared to matched non-HIV-infected individuals. And as you can see, in just counting the number of prescriptions the patient is on, 
although this goes up in both groups with age, uh, above the age of 60, the HIV-infected patients are taking more prescription medications, with over 40% taking more than five prescription medications, as was the case for today's case, uh, where the patient was taking seven prescription medications. Now, uh, polypharmacy means increased pill burden. And this is looking at pill burden in HIV positive uh, patients in the red and HIV negative patients in the blue. Um, on the left hand side of the screen, including antiretroviral meds and on the right hand side of the screen, excluding antiretrovirals. And what you can see here is that uh, broken down again by age bracket for increase each increasing decile of age. There's an increasing number of pills taken per day, and the HIV-infected patients have significantly more pills uh, 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 than the HIV seronegative patients, even if you exclude um, ARVs uh, from this comparison. Now, um, not surprisingly, the kinds of medications that tend to accumulate with aging are uh, medications we associate with age-related comorbidities. Cardiovascular disease, um, antidepressants, gastrointestinal disease, narcotics for chronic pain, um, and uh, uh, systemic hormones, which would include testosterone. And so here's, here is a, a, an analysis looking at uh, accumulated medications and risk of drug interactions uh, in HIV-infected patients um, ta- uh, as a function of age less than 50 or greater than 50. And what you can see is that above the age of 50, there are significantly more drugs prescribed for cardiovascular disease, more antidepressants, more drugs for GI disease, more pain meds, uh, and even more hormones. Now, what are the consequences of all this polypharmacy besides pill burden? Well, as you accumulate more medications, not surprisingly, there's a greater risk for drug interactions. And that's shown in this analysis, uh, uh, comparing individuals under 50, 50 to 64, or greater than or equal to 65, um, showing the uh, number of co-medications for which a possible drug interaction exists and an increasing possibility of drug interactions uh, as a function of age. In addition with polypharmacy, there's an increased risk of accumulated adverse drug reactions. And adverse drug reactions may be related to drug drug class, as uh, Christine just uh, just indicated in her talk, uh, with um, significant potential for adverse drug reactions in elderly patients taking drugs for cardiovascular uh, diseases, diuretics, anticoagulants, non-steroidals and anti-diabetics, and, and this can cause or can exacerbate important geriatric syndromes related to frailty, which includes falls, cognitive decline, and orthostatic hypotension. Um, in addition, with increasing pill burden and complexity of regimen, there's an increased risk of non-adherence caused by increasing side effects, pill burden, complex dosing regimens, depression or cognitive impairment, size of tablets, health literacy, and health beliefs, uh, which can uh, be generational. 
Now, are some drugs more problematic than others in HIV-infected patients and in others who are who are older? And the answer, of course, is yes. So this is a look uh, of the uh, of the um, reported potential for drug interactions of other co-medications in this analysis, 750 co-medications um, with each of these eight different antiretroviral drugs or drug classes. So boosted ARVs, um, uh, the integrase inhibitors, raltegravir, diategravir, bictegravir, um, and then uh, non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, efavirenz, atravirine, rilpivirine, and deraverine. And overall, what you can see is that as a class, integrase inhibitors tend to be associated with fewer drug interactions than other antiretrovirals, although deraverine uh, is, has a drug interaction profile approaching that of these three integrase inhibitors. In addition, boosted antiretrovirals <clears throat> tend to be associated with the most potentially clinically significant drug interactions with the red wedge indicating drugs that should not be co-administered, the orange indicate, indicating interactions of potential clinical relevance as compared to the green, which is no expected interaction, or the yellow, which is potential weak interaction. If you look as a, as a class in um, uh, older patients with polypharmacy, there are certain kinds of drugs most likely to be associated with clinically significant uh, drug interactions, and these are so-called potentially inappropriate medications, or PIMs. So here is a review of prescriptions for 94 HIV-infected patients um, uh, with a mean age of 64 from the San Francisco HIV over 60 cohort, um, looking at the frequency of potentially inappropriate medications as compared to matched HIV uninfected patients and showing 52% of the HIV positive patients in this analysis of being prescribed PIMs as compared to only 29% of the uninfected controls. One of the drug classes that's most likely to be associated with clinically significant events in older patients are drugs with anticholinergic pharmacologic effects. And in this analysis, nearly one out of five of the HIV-infected uh, patients were prescribed a PIM with an anticholinergic risk score of greater than or equal to three as compared to only 4% of the uninfected patients. In addition, the um, uh, HIV-infected patients had more uh, uh, non-HIV medications prescribed on average than the uninfected patients, eight versus six. Now, here are some of the drug classes posing particular problems in uh, elderly patients, including those with HIV infection. Um, and this includes antihypertensives, for example, causing orthostatic hypotension, benzodiazepines causing increased cognitive sensitivity with sedation and confusion, um, opioids with increased sensitivity to cognitive and, um, uh, and constipating effects, beta blockers, diuretics, and of course, anticholinergic agents. So let's go back to our case and look in depth at his drug regimen. So let's think about this patient's 
I think, fairly complex antiretroviral regimen and ask ourselves whether the combination and the dosing is evidence-based. First of all, this patient was taking dietegravir and etrovirine together. Can these two drugs be administered without dose modification? We know that etrovirine reduces concentrations of dietegravir and co-administration is contraindicated except in the presence of darunavir and ritonavir. Now, today's patient was taking, uh, was taking cobisostat, um, and uh, presumably the same would be true for cobisostat, although that's not in the, um, uh, that's not in the package insert for these drugs. The other issue here is that etrovirine was being given at a double dose of 400 milligrams once a day. And one has to ask whether that double dose of etrovirine changes the potential for drug interactions. Now, the other issue here is the combination of darunavir-ritonavir and etrovirine in this patient and whether or not these agents could be administered without dose modification. We know that etrovirine reduces cobisostat concentrations and hence reduces darunavir concentrations, and therefore co-administration is contraindicated. And yet these drugs were being used in this patient who was fully suppressed and seemed to be doing fine. But the other issue here was the double dose of etrovirine and whether that changes the potential for drug interactions. Finally, let's think about administering etrovirine as a once-a-day drug. This drug is only FDA-approved for administration as a 200-milligram BID regimen. But it has a very long half-life, 30 to 40 hours, and that should support once-daily dosing. In fact, there have been clinical studies of once-per-day etrovirine. Um, In the SENSE trial, 400 milligrams of etrovirine given once a day was combined with NRTIs and was equally efficacious as efavirenz 600 milligrams plus NRTIs. So even though this is not FDA approved, um, there is evidence that it can be clinically effective. Let's think now about combining this patient's antiretrovirals with some of the non-HIV medicines in his regimen. So this patient was taking omeprazole and um, was taking uh, Malox as needed for gastroesophageal reflux disease. What about combining PPIs and antacids with this complex ARV regimen? First of all, does omeprazole or Malox alter the absorption of any of the drugs uh, in this patient's regimen? which included boosted darunavir, etrovirine, and dietegravir. Proton pump inhibitors like omeprazole can reduce the absorption of several antiretrovirals, especially atazanavir, but would not be expected to affect any of the drugs in this patient's regimen. So we get a green light for proton pump inhibitors with these four drugs. However, Malox is a magnesium-containing antacid, and divalent cations like magnesium cannot be and should not be co-administered with dietegravir. In fact, the package insert warns us 
to give magnesium containing antacids two hours before or six hours after dolutegravir. And the reason for that is, uh, is illustrated on this slide, which shows that the active site of the, the, uh, the, the site of action of integrase inhibitors in the HIV integrase involves binding to important magnesium ions that act as essential divalent cations for the integrase, uh, uh, for the integrase reaction. Um, and if the, uh, if the, um, uh, integrase inhibitor binds to magnesium uh, cations and other divalent cations in the intestinal tract, that precludes their ability to inhibit HIV integrase inside the cell once they're absorbed. And so that also results in a decreased plasma concentration of, uh, of uh, dolutegravir and other integrase inhibitors as shown on the figure in the, in, in the middle of the slide where the top is the concentrations over time of dolutegravir alone. The light blue is dolutegravir with antacids given two hours later and the green is dolutegravir given simultaneously with a magnesium containing antacid like Malox. So don't give magnesium containing anti, uh, um, antacids with integrase inhibitors if you can help it. Um, and, uh, if you have to give them, then give them two hours before or six hours after taking the integrase inhibitor, which can be difficult for patients to remember. Unfortunately, this interaction affects all of the currently approved integrase inhibitors, including raltegravir, elvitegravir, and bictegravir. So this is a class effect. And it's important also to keep in mind that you, 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 you need not just pay attention to prescribed medications, but also over the counter medications as, um, antacids containing magnesium and other divalent cation containing preparations. For example, calcium supplements, uh, can be purchased over the counter without that appearing in the patient's medical record. All right, let's move now to some of the other medications in this patient's regimen. Let's talk about the drug interaction potential of sertraline, an antidepressant. Sertraline is an SSRI. It is mainly a cytochrome P450 2D6 substrate. Atraverine is a weak 2D6 inducer and could modestly decrease concentrations, but darunavir cobacistat is a weak 2D6 inhibitor and could therefore increase concentrations, although because it's a weak inhibitor, I think that's unlikely. And so you've got two agents here working in opposite directions on the concentrations of sertraline. What do we think about putting these four drugs together? Well, I think overall the clinical impact is unlikely, but you do need to monitor for sertraline efficacy and increase the dose if needed particularly if the patient has ongoing symptoms of depression. Finally, there's no interactions expected here with dolutegravir. Let's move now to the two words most dreaded by people, uh, by men over the age of 60. And those two words are urology clinic. So this patient was referred from the urology clinic. And the whole reason for this consult was some advice about medications for prostatic hypertrophy. 
So the urology clinic would like to start this patient on the combination of tamsulosin, 0.4 milligrams per day, and finasteride, 5 milligrams per day. Any problem adding these two drugs to this patient's regimen? Well, let's talk about the drug interaction potential of those two agents with ARVs. Can finasteride be safely administered with dietegravir, atravirine, and darunavir cobisostat? Finasteride is a CYP3A4 substrate. Atravirine is a CYP inducer and could decrease concentrations of finasteride, but cobisostat and darunavir are CYP inhibitors and could increase concentrations. So again, you've got this yin-yang interaction here, and the clinical impact is uncertain, but you should monitor for finasteride efficacy and perhaps unexpected toxicity. The major um, unexpected toxicity of finasteride in this case would be impotence. Um, fortunately, no expected uh, interactions with dietegravir. What about tamsulosin? Can it be safely administered with these four ARVs? Well, tamsulosin is both a CYP3A4 and a CYP2D6 substrate. Atravirine is a CYP inducer and could decrease concentrations, but darunavir cobisostat are CYP inhibitors and could increase concentrations. Same situation as we just faced with finasteride. Tamsulosin is an alpha-1 antagonist and it can cause orthostatic hypotension and lower blood pressure. In fact, it is one of those potentially inappropriate medications on the PIM list for elderly patients, and our patient today is almost 60. However, we know that tamsulosin has been safely administered with other 3A4 and 2D6 inhibitors, but we need to monitor for both efficacy and unexpected toxicity in this patient, especially postural hypotension. And it would be a good idea when this patient reports back to clinic, have him come back in two to four weeks and perform um, postural uh, vital signs uh, prior to his being seen uh, for evaluation. The other trick here is to make sure you start with the lowest possible dose of tamsulosin, 0.4 milligrams per day, which is fortunately what the urologists were proposing to do. So let's, let's move on to thinking about some general approaches to the management of polypharmacy. I think today's patient illustrates a lot of the difficulties we face in the clinic. Um, in thinking about polypharmacy drug interactions and how to manage a complex medical regimen in the HIV-infected patient. One of the things we should always be thinking about is how to limit polypharmacy in order to reduce its potential adverse effects. The gerontologists recommend frequent medication reconciliation and prescription review. And that includes discontinuation of any unnecessary drugs. For example, today's patient was getting both omeprazole and Malox. That's almost never uh, essential to control gastroesophageal reflux disease. And in this patient, I would simply delete the Malox from their regimen and stick with the proton pump inhibitor because there are no expected interactions here. 
Identify medications that are treating adverse effects of other medications. Man, this comes up all the time with older patients in the general medicine clinic. And it's something we're going to be facing more and more in our HIV uh, 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 patients as they get older. And so if one of your patients comes to clinic complaining of a new symptom, first and foremost, make sure that symptom is not due to one of their medications. And if it is, discontinue that drug if possible or switch the patient to a drug that does not have that side effect. Ensure that the medications are being dosed appropriately, that the duration of treatment is appropriate. For example, we have the tendency in our clinic, once a patient is started on a proton pump inhibitor or an antidepressant, to keep patients on those medications forever. But we know that most cases of depression are not forever, are often reactive, and that the antidepressant can be stopped with careful monitoring of the patient and, if necessary, in consultation with your colleagues in the psychiatric clinic. Always check for drug-drug interactions, and we'll talk about how to do that in a couple of slides. Think about drug-disease interactions, for example, the impact of kidney and liver disease on drug concentrations. Keep that list of inappropriate medications in the elderly um, and check with the patient if there are missing medications from their list that they may be picking up from another care provider or as an over-the-counter med from the pharmacy. The gerontologists have developed Beer's criteria to stop and start medications and to exclude medications from a complex medical regimen. And these are valuable uh, for those of you who see a lot of older patients. Just a reminder that the anticholinergic drugs are particularly bad actors, and drugs like tamsulosin are on that list. Um, and here also are other drugs to worry about, amitriptyline, diphenhydramine. A diphenhydramine or Benadryl is commonly used in the elderly as a sleep aid, but that's actually not good medicine in older patients. Although diphenhydramine may make elderly patients drowsy, it also causes orthostatic hypotension and can cause confusion and is more likely to put the patient in the hospital than it is to improve their um, uh, their sleepiness. So diphenhydramine or Benadryl is a drug that should be avoided in older patients. Finally, if you want to look for drug interactions in a complex medical regimen, I highly recommend one of the many good uh, online uh, websites or apps that can help you track drug-drug interactions. I am particularly fond of the University of Liverpool apps. They have a separate app for HIV drug interactions and for hepatitis uh, virus drug interactions. So you have the HIV DIs and the HEP DIs in separate apps that both can be downloaded onto your smartphone. They're very easy to use. They are up to date. They are scholarly. Uh, and I think uh, they can help out a lot in a patient like the one we're seeing today. I want to finish uh, my talk and spend the last 15 minutes talking about a new potential issue in the HIV in the management of HIV-infected patients, and that is the uh, uh, the effect of long-acting antiretroviral regimens 
on drug interactions and polypharmacy and how we need to think about these agents in this context. The patient has now heard about the availability of long-acting cabotegravir and rilpivirine and is interested in switching to an injectable ARV regimen because he thinks it will help him simplify his complicated medical regimen and make it easier for him to manage his meds. Assuming he does not have a history of rilpivirine resistance-associated mutations, do you think this patient would be a good candidate for injectable ARVs, and what will be the potential impact on drug-drug interactions with his non-HIV medications? What is the overall drug interaction potential for long-acting formulations? It turns out it's actually different, significantly different from oral regimens. We're used to thinking about pills leaving the stomach, being absorbed from the uh, intestinal tract, entering the portal circulation where they may undergo first-pass metabolism through the liver into the systemic circulation. But long-acting injectable or implantable or transdermal formulations eliminate the GI tract as a site for drug interactions. So we no longer have to worry about pH-dependent absorption, drug chelation, first-pass effects, or gastrointestinal membrane transporter effects. However, there are other things we have to think about. And what we have to think about is something most of you have probably never heard of until today. And that is the concept of flip-flop pharmacokinetics. So what is flip-flop pharmacokinetics and why should it matter to you? Well, unlike drugs given orally, drugs administered parenterally particularly if they are administered as a subcutaneous or intramuscular depot, behave very differently from drugs given orally. Specifically, in this intramuscular depot, these depots are designed to release the drug very slowly from the depot and not have the drug return to the depot. In fact, the rate at which the drug leaves this intramuscular depot is much, much slower than the rate at which the drug is cleared from the systemic circulation by the liver or the kidneys once it's absorbed. And this is exactly what happens with intramuscular cabotegravir and rilpivirine. They form they are given as nanocrystals that form an intramuscular depot and the, the drug is released from that depot very slowly over four to eight weeks. And so the rate limiting step determining drug concentrations in such a situation is not the rate of elimination. It's the rate of release from the depot. And that leads to this term of flip-flop pharmacokinetics. I personally hate the term. It implies that the pharmacokinetic profile is somehow backwards. 
But what it really means is absorption-dependent pharmacokinetics. And so drugs that are susceptible to absorption-dependent pharmacokinetics, like long-acting cabotegravir and long-acting rilpivirine, are more dependent on their release rate from the depot than they are on renal or hepatic clearance for determining plasma concentrations and systemic concentrations of drug. And therefore, drugs administered using such a strategy are not very susceptible to inhibition of clearance by the, in the liver or the kidney. And that's because this process, the release rate, is much more, uh, it, um, it much more uh, determines drug concentrations than the rate of clearance because this is so much slower than this. So for inhibition interactions, you don't have to worry very much with a drug administered as an intramuscular depot like cabotegravir or rilpivirine. However, Induction reactions, that is increased clearance by the liver or the kidney, still matter. And here's a paper we published in the Journal of Infectious Diseases uh, examining exactly this situation um, in uh, 2019, looking at predicting interactions between long-acting cabotegravir and rolpivirine and a powerful inducing agent like rifampicin given for tuberculosis. And these predictions suggest that if you, whether you give cabotegravir every four weeks or every eight weeks, or rilpivirine every four weeks or every eight weeks, compared to the concentrations without the inducer in the blue, the inducer in the orange substantially decreases systemic concentrations of this drug because increasing clearance still impacts concentration, even for drugs that are being released from this depot very slowly. What about the drug interaction potential of other newer investigational long-acting agents? Well, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the new long-acting agent, lenacapavir, or GS6207. This is the Gilead capsid inhibitor a first-in-class agent, which is available in both oral and subcutaneous long-acting formulations. Um, And I'm going to present data from drug interaction studies performed with lenacapavir that were presented at CROI last month. This is just a reminder that lenacapavir has extraordinarily uh, slow elimination from the plasma when given as a subcutaneous injection. And these are data that were presented in 2020 showing the concentration time profile of lenacapavir given as a 300 milligram or a 900 milligram dose in healthy HIV seronegative volunteers showing a very, very long half-life. This is weeks, not days, um, on the uh, x-axis. And, and showing that with the 900 milligram subcutaneous dose, you can sustain concentrations um, above the antiretroviral target of six times the mean inhibitory quotient for at least uh, six months. And so this drug is being developed as an every six month 
subcutaneous injection. But what about its drug interaction potential? Well, in this study presented at CROI, linocapavir orally was combined with several other oral probe drugs, um, including midazolam, tenofovir alafenamide, rosuvastatin, and uh, pitavastatin. And what you can see is that uh, uh, linocapavir had very little impact on these three drugs, whose elimination is largely drug transporter uh, 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 determined, but did have a significant interaction on midazolam, which is a pure cytochrome P453A4 substrate. In fact, linocapavir roughly doubled concentrations of a probe dose of midazolam. And so what this tells us is that linocapavir in its current dose form is a potentially significant cytochrome P453A4 inhibitor and should be used with caution uh, if given with agents that are sensitive uh, 3A4 substrates. That is agents that are pure 3A4 substrates or nearly pure 3A4 substrates with a narrow therapeutic index. So this is very different than what we're used to with cabotegravir or, or rilpivirine that would not have the same expected a drug interaction profile. Now, what about linocapavir and a potent uh, 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 enzyme and transport inducer? Well, here's the impact of rifampin on linocapavir. And just as we showed with uh, cabotegravir and rilpivirine, uh, linocapavir concentrations are significantly reduced and its clearance is significantly accelerated with the inducing agent rifampin. And so you can give linocapavir safely with cytochrome P453A4 inhibitors, but you cannot give linocapavir with potent 3A4 inducers like rifampin, St. John's wort, and certain anticonvulsants like carbamazepine. So this is going to introduce some complexity in the use of linocapavir that we have not seen with cabotegravir and rilpivirine. And so I think although the drug interaction potential of long-acting formulations is going to be reduced compared to oral formulations, it's not going to be eliminated completely. So in summary, our simulations suggest that co-administration of oral rifampicin with long-acting cabotegravir and rilpivirine results in suboptimal exposure. And in fact, the FDA has accepted similar simulations to recommend that rifampin not be given with these formulations. Induction reactions will therefore continue to cause clinically significant drug-drug interactions with long-acting formulations. But inhibition reactions are predicted to have less of an impact on long-acting formulations than on oral formulations. So-called flip-flop or absorption-dependent or release-dependent kinetics help explain this situation and also help to explain why the pharmacokinetic tail of these formulations is sustained for as long as it is, often for several months or more than a year. So that's the upside or the positive side of so-called flip-flop kinetics. I want to stop there and thank uh, the many people who contributed to this presentation, um, including some of the data that I showed that are not yet published. Uh, that's uh, particularly data from Martin Ree and Justin Lutz at Gilead.
but also thank Marta Bofito at Chelsea and Westminster, uh, Katia Marzellini at the University of Basel, and uh, Sekou and David Back at the University of Liverpool, who shared with me several of their slides and tables on polypharmacy and issues to consider um, in uh, 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 complex drug interactions uh, in elderly patients with and without HIV. I also want to acknowledge my funding sources. And for those of you interested in all things long acting, I will refer you to the website for LEAP, the Long Acting Extended Release Antiretroviral Research Resource Program. So, Melanie, I'm going to stop there, and I would be happy to answer questions. Well, thank you so much. Um, yeah, this is this has been a great presentation, and thank you for taking us into uh, the future and also the the present uh, as we begin to deal with rolling out uh, cabotegravir and and ropivirine in their long acting forms. Uh, so, I want to ask the audience please to um, put your questions in the Q and A box. Uh, about your favorite drug interactions. We have an opportunity for uh, expert consultation right here. Um, and, and so I'll start off. Um, we have a lot of patients who are taking metformin. And I wondered if you could just comment for a few minutes about the drug interactions uh, with metformin and some of the NSTs, particularly dolutegravir and victegravir. Great. Thanks, Melanie. I, I thought about discussing metformin today, but my, my patient was not taking it. So, um, I didn't, I didn't include it. Uh, but that is a very important and very common, uh, drug interaction of concern with integrase inhibitors. So dolutegravir increases Metformin concentrations by around 80%. Um, Bictegravir increases metformin concentrations by around 45%. Um, and, and so the question is, what do you do about that? The, the, it, the mechanism for that interaction is a drug transporter effect that's common to both dolutegravir and bictegravir, although dolutegravir is a slightly more potent inhibitor of the drug transporter involved in metformin transport. Um, the most concerning consequence of increased metformin concentrations is lactic acidosis. Fortunately, lactic acidosis with metformin is rare. It's almost always seen in people with renal insufficiency and it's almost always seen in people taking high doses of metformin. And so for the average patient taking a low dose of metformin, the kinds of concentration increases we see with bictegravir and dolutegravir are unlikely to produce clinical consequences. However, if your patient has underlying renal insufficiency, and if your patient is taking high doses of metformin, then I think this is a drug interaction of potential concern. And the, the uh, decision point for the clinician is whether to switch the patient off metformin, switch the patient off the integrase inhibitor, or simply monitor the patient closely for possible signs and symptoms of lactic acidosis, which I personally would not recommend the latter solution because lactic acidosis can occur without warning 
and can be quite severe or even fatal. And so my advice would be if you have somebody with renal insufficiency or somebody who's taking and or is taking high doses of metformin, um, I would try to avoid the interaction. Yeah, thank you so much for that. It is such a, a common um, question that comes up here uh, in in the South in particular. Um, so we have a, a couple of great questions in the Q&A box about drug-drug interactions in our patients um, of transgender experience uh, who are on HIV meds or meds for PrEP. Um, so could you comment about drug interactions with hormone replacement therapy, um, particularly estradiol uh, and other drugs that might be used in this patient population? Yeah, thank, thanks, Melody. This question comes up all the time. Um, and my experience talking to people who, who see and treat a lot of transgender patients is that for, um, um, uh, for transgender women, they are much more concerned about the uh, efficacy of their hormones than they are often about the efficacy of their antiretrovirals. So we want to make sure we know what the drug interaction potential is, and we want to make sure we know what to tell our patients. So um, uh, there was a well-done study presented at CROI this year looking at the impact of um, uh, antiretroviral regimens containing tenofovir prodrugs on estradiol concentrations and vice versa. And the good news is they found no significant interaction between uh, estradiol and tenofovir prodrugs. I, I think the limitation of that study is it was small. And also the limitation of that study is it only looked at one estradiol regimen, although it looked at a very common one. Um, and in addition, that study did not include um, androgen antagonists which we know about half of our transgender women in the United States take in addition to taking estrogen. And, and so the early evidence suggests that there is very low potential for clinically significant drug-drug interactions between any existing ARVs and, um, uh, the, and estradiol or um, uh, antiandrogens as taken by, as currently taken by our patients. Um, however, we need more data, we need more studies, and we also need to ask our patients to cooperate with us, um, particularly if they feel decreased feminizing effects after starting their anti- a new antiretroviral regimen. And, and so what I would recommend is, you know, this is a situation where we have to work with our patients uh, to make sure we're doing what's in their best interest. And obviously, we want our transgender patients to feel comfortable, but we also want to make sure that their HIV is not replicated. And, and, and so um, I think there's a lot of, of, um, of uh, um, uh, misinformation out there about the interactions between antiretrovirals and um, um, feminizing hormones. And um, we need to work to counter that misinformation and provide real data to the extent that we can, because there now is real data out there about the pharmacokinetic interactions between um, uh, feminizing hormones and uh, antiretrovirals. 
I think that's great advice because, as we know, our transgender patients may prioritize their hormone therapy over their antiretroviral therapy for fear that there may be interference. So this is a, a really important point for uh, for education. Uh, yeah. We have another question about uh, whether polypharmacy can contribute to HIV viral load blips. So that's an excellent question. I, I, I would say there's a couple of ways in which polypharmacy can contribute to HIV blips. Um, the most important is um, interfering with the patient's ability to take their antiretrovirals regularly as they should. And so um, uh, the, the pill burden issue and the complexity of the medical regimen can sometimes make it harder for the patient to actually remember whether or not they took their antiretrovirals that day. Um, and so if you see a patient with a very complicated medical regimen who's had a blip, make sure you work with the patient to understand whether they actually are taking their anti-HIV drugs as expected. The other possibility is there could be drug-drug interactions between uh, the non-HIV medicines and the HIV medicines. Now, the most likely offenders would be um, inducing agents like rifampicin or St. John's wort or um, powerful inducers like carbamazepine and other related anticonvulsants. However, as we discussed with today's patient, divalent cations can also impact the absorption of integrase inhibitors. And one of my colleagues uh, on our rehearsal call on Monday reported that they had a patient who was having blips, who was on uh, an integrase inhibitor, and they figured out that this person was occasionally taking um, uh, calcium supplements without letting the doctor know. Um, and, and so there's a really good example of the importance of keeping track of not just the prescription non-HIV medications, but the non-prescription non-HIV medications to make sure you understand uh, whether or not a, a blip could be the consequence of one of the drugs in, in a in a complex medical regimen. Yeah, so very important. These over-the-counter um, supplements um, and, and drugs really matter, and sometimes we really just don't ask. Uh, so you find out later on when you get the viral load back, and um, but it's an easy way to cure low-level viremia sometimes, so definitely uh, worth a look. Also uh, true, and, and also just a reminder, um, if you take your calcium supplements with food, then the food is able to buffer the calcium from binding to the integrase inhibitor. And the FDA has actually recommended that if you're going to take calcium supplements with integrase inhibitors, please make sure the patient is taking those calcium supplements with food. Yeah, that's, that's a great tip. There is a, there is a difference among these uh, cations in terms of the requirements. Um, so, um, well, I'm, I'm going to thank you for that and thank you for your talk and uh, leave this there. There are some other questions in the Q&A, and I wonder if you would be willing to go in and maybe provide some uh, answers to some of the questions that we didn't get to. Sure. Happy to do that, Melanie. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much, uh, and uh, we really appreciate uh, your wisdom today, Charlie. We'll see you at the panel. All right. Sounds good.